Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 248, the Screaming Trees Buzz Factory. We love the Screaming Trees on the show, always appreciate an opportunity to talk about them, and we've got a special guest. You bet. We've got Jack and Dino on the show. Yeah, this is a great interview, and I'm super pumped to have Jack on the show. This is one of those ones where Brent sends me a note and says, interview's done, go have a listen, and I stopped everything I was doing to go have a listen, and man, oh man, it does not disappoint. (laughs) There's definitely a lot out there from Jack, but he's just so legendary and has so many spiels to share. It's a great interview. Great for him to contribute to the SST and Screaming Tree story on the Mojack show. So people are going to love the interview. And uh, we're just, I don't know, so honored, I would say, to have Jack on the show. So honored. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into it, though, Brent, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay, I have a podcast shout out. What's on Bass Edition? Do it. Okay, a podcast I listen to occasionally called Spinning Out with Josh Robbins. Very similar to That Record Got Me High. It's a show where he has a different guest on uh, each episode and they discuss one of their favorite albums. It's weekly and he's done like 133 episodes, so I respect that right off the bat. It's a lot of work doing a weekly show, especially with guests. Speak for yourself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He recently had this guy Jeremy Radio of Charlotte, North Carolina band Thousand Dollar Movie, and they talk about ball hog or tugboat. It's a great classic. Yeah, it's a great chat. Watt has bunked up with Jeremy while on tour, like stayed at his pad on tour through Charlotte. So he, he Jeremy talks about, you know, how they stayed up all night talking about bass one night. Oh yeah. <laughs> And they go they they go into detail on their record, which I honestly haven't listened to in quite quite a while. So I kind of forgot some of the people that are on it and some of the stuff like the the Kathleen Hanna answering machine message, oh, yeah. for example. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Watt. Yeah. So it's a good episode. Good reminder yeah. to listen to Ballhog or Tugboat. Ballhog is a bit inconsistent, mm-hmm. but it still is a great listen, and it has some amazing tracks on it that make the not-so-amazing tracks, still a great listen. Yeah, I mean, anytime you have a project like that, like, they kind of compare it, I think, to Dave Grohl's ProBart project. ProBot? ProBot, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I know I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so rando, right? Yeah. But some of the, some of the amazing tracks are just out of this world. Yeah. Like Piss Bottle Man and, oh, man, I don't know, so much good stuff. I got my ProBot mixed up with Brian ProBart. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, and and then speaking of Rob Alba's awesome show, That Record Got Me High, I know I spiel about it every other week, but he always seems to have really cool guests on talking about good records um, that I'm into. He and Mike Baguetta talk about Watts contemplating the engine room, and it is just so good. Obviously, Mike Baguetta knows Watt and has toured with him and has picked picked his brain about the album. And like with it being a concept album, there's a lot to dissect and talk about. It's great. Mike Baguetta knows his shit and is a great storyteller and has lots of respect for Watt, you know, as a person and as an artist. So I can't recommend that episode enough. Yeah. The Contemplating the Engine Room is probably my favorite still, I would say, of Mike Watt solo records. 
And then when they re-released it with the the live accompanying album, just killer. Yeah. And then real quick, SST adjacent, Nate Goyer recently had Jay Maskus on his show, The Vinyl Guide. As usual with Jay, it's not exactly a smooth, easy flowing conversation. Nate tries his best, but you know, his, the format of his show is actually a, a good one for a chat with Jay, which I imagine is part of the reason he agreed to do it. He, he gets the most talkative when they get into specific pressings of old punk singles. Yeah. Jay talks about record collecting and some of his favorite finds over the years. So he actually gets, you know, a little actually involved in the conversation. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Nate's, Nate's good at filling in the gaps, too, for mm-hmm. someone like a Jay Mascus. Yeah, it's just funny listening to someone wind up this long question, detailed question. <laughs> and they go, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I haven't heard it yet. I actually haven't heard it yet. At one point, Nate's Nate's like, "Can you describe your record collection?" And and they're obviously on Zoom or whatever. And Jay's like, "Well, it's right behind me. Can you see it?" (laughs) (laughs) Oh well, now I know what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to listen to that one. Yeah. That's all I have, Ryan. It's been a been a busy couple of weeks of travel and stuff. So I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and stuff while I've been traveling. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, Uncle Traveling Matt. So yeah. oh, so when you're traveling, you do the podcast thing, not just records. Not just records. Yeah. Okay. I find that listening to a podcast while traveling, it's actually even harder for me to pay attention to it with oh. all the yeah, with all the with all the humanity going around. You mm. know, when you're in a lineup or in this big hallway or crammed like a sardine into a plane or something. Yeah. Well, when it, when it gets like that, that's when you just switch it over to some fucking brutal death metal or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when are you listening to podcasts when you're eating your breakfast in the morning? Yeah. When I'm walking around the city trying to find record stores and stuff. Oh, okay. Well, that's when I want to be most engaged with the people in my surroundings, I guess. So, interesting. All right, well, I'm going to be traveling for uh, the latter half of this month. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll try on a podcast or two and see if I survive. Okay. That's all I have, Ryan. What do you have? All right, here we go. So, I got to read the news to you. There's a lot of news, okay? Records and books. I just want to get these out rapid fire because people got to know. There's a new Freak Accident record that came out. Nice. Outer Space is Boring, 12-inch. Self-released, this is eight songs from Ralph Spite of Victim's Family, Saturn's Flea Collar, Hellworms, Guantanamo School of Medicine. Check that out on Ralph's Freak Accident Bandcamp. It's good. I'm sure it is. Uh, Two from the Replacements Camp. There's a new Tommy Stinson, Cowboys in the Campfire. This is his combo with... Chip Roberts. It's an acoustic rock and folk combo. The record is Ronger. It's self-released. Check that out. And Tommy also let slip on a podcast with Lisa Loeb recently huh. that they're that they're gonna give the Tim record, the box set treatment. Oh. And I always suspected that if there was gonna be a box set, there was gonna be like a Tim version of that coming along. So it's not Super shocking, but it's really welcome news. Well, I'm sure we've talked about this before, or I've said this before, but those 
replacements box sets are top notch, man. Like they're some of these box sets, they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel, you know, like the Ramones reissues with the extra tracks or like some of the Sabbath ones, but the replacement ones have been really good. Yeah, no, they're top quality, right? I love that record. Can't wait. Another replacements box set. Sign me up. Yep. In a similar vein, though, in terms of, I guess, you know, my love for a band, there is this new band called The Slip-Ons, and there's a single out called Bad TV that you got to check out, and this is Brock Pytel from the Doughboys, new combo, mm-hmm. with uh, Rob from the Spitfires. There's an additional EP coming out soon, but go check out The Slip-Ons, Bad TV on Bandcamp. You can get an actual physical copy of that, a 7-inch Another band that I'm a big fan of, Six Finger Satellite. The Pigeon is the most popular bird. Being re-released on Sub Pop, remastered. This is noisy post-punk in the vein of Gang of Four and Birthday Party, originally from 1993. It was originally engineered by Bob Weston, too. I mean, it sounds good, but this is out in June if you want to get your uh, Six Finger Satellite on. It's actually pretty tough to get a copy of this one on vinyl and you know the sub pop re-releases are always top notch over to the sst tree otherwise known as the ss tree ss tree that's right <laughs> we've got a uh, a new release from rig remember rig mm-hmm. yeah demolstruct coming out on cassette covers rigs early years 1990 to 93 before they signed with Cruise Records in 94, this, of course, is Craig Gabara's band who worked at SST, and it's out on his Water Under the Bridge records. There's a download code that comes with the cassette with extra tracks as well. I like this description of Rig for folks, uh, if you've never checked them out. Lyrics about exploitation and injustice backed by clanking and chugging machinery. Yes. Yeah. So check that out. Rig Demolstruct cassette. And then, Brant, you already touched on it in your podcast shout-out. I'm not sure who's on first, but... Watt's on bass. Watt is totally on bass with three new releases that I'm aware of anyways. The first one is DTR and Mike Watt. It's not a hippocampus. It's a seahorse. (laughs) I love the name. Um, It's digital only, so far at least, out in April. This DTR is Derek Gadalicia. I'm going to mispronounce all these names, by the way. Tori Kudo and Rich Hoosh, or Rich Hausch. Um, this is lo-fi electronic tunes with Japanese vocals. Totally, totally weird and out there and hypnotizing. Check out DTR and Mike Watt. Also out is Pelican Man, Planet Chernobyl. This is out in May. Words of poet Charles Plimmel, vision and bass of Mike Watt, orchestrations and vocals of Petra Hayden. Mm. This is Watt and Hayden. They were so moved by Plimmel's account of the 1986 Chernobyl disaster, they were compelled to put it out to uh, music. It's described as folk poetry with Watt's distinctive bass and Petra's pristine vocals. And it definitely is. Comes out on CD and vinyl on ORG Music. And then finally, for 
a three-banger on Watts on base, mm-hmm. Raul Cantizano and Hidden Forces Trio. Raul is a flamenco and experimental jazz guitarist. He joins the Hidden Forces Trio for some way, way out guitar, bass, clarinet, jazz, skronking. Also with Watt, who lends some spiels to the track We Who Sold Our Soul for Nothing. This is out in uh, May of 23 as well. So check out Raul Cantazano and Hidden Forces Trio. Watch Spiels It on one track. It's, it's a cool track too, by the way. Check that out. And then, finally, some bookage, Brandt. Mm. You're, you're running out of books, right? No. No? No? Okay. Well, out on your favorite press of late, Hozak. Okay. Two books. Two books that I saw that I'm sure are going to be killer. Um, Punk Under the Sun a massive overview of the fertile underground punk scene in Florida from the late 70s to the early 80s out this fall. That is an area that I really don't know. So got to check that one out. Yeah. And then Pull Down the Shades, Garage Fanzine, 1984 to 1986 by Richard Langston, Tales from the New Zealand Music Underground. And you know... A great accompanying book to that uh, Plastic and Needles that came out right. on Third Man. Right. Now I would say, you know, the New Zealand underground is definitely getting its uh, its due, which is amazing. I actually saw that both of those books, they're being shared on the Third Man and Hozak threads. Hmm. So it sounds like they're giving each other props, which is great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's it, man. So I don't know. I think that is like 11 new things for you to get. Hmm. What do you think this is? The Mojack Holiday Gift Guide? <laughs> this is the uh, the summer gift guide. Okay. Yeah, summer gift guide. This is what you're going to read and listen to on your Mojack vacation. Uh, okay. I can get behind that. All right. Well, that's it, man. Let's get into Buzz Factory. History lesson, part one. All right. Love the trees, love Indino, love a trees release on the Mojack show. How do we want to kick off? I've got a bit of a rundown, but I think you do too. Do you want to kick off? Yeah, Ryan, I have the kind of front page of the press kit that kind of brings us up to speed here. Nice. What kind of trees are you? The screaming trees have decided to show their true colors. Tired of the endless parade of mutant behemoth of the Pacific Northwest descriptions, the trees abandon the forest greens, the colors of verdant nature in bloom, and of signs of things vegetable and fertile. Instead, Buzz Factory towers above you, a place where complex machinery operates all night long, creating a deafening drone. The kaleidoscopic visions that creep into your head swirl out of this melee of industrial activity welcome still the nature metaphors sometimes seem appropriate the stature of these trees certainly keeps growing having first released their other worlds ep on k cassettes in 1985 released as sst 105 is that true k cassettes you're asking me about whether other worlds was originally released on k yeah i don't even remember Maybe it was, Ryan. I actually saw that. I think I sent you a picture of it. I saw a sealed copy of that while I was on my... On vinyl. Yeah, on vinyl. Like, I think, I wonder if, you know, I hate to put it this way, but maybe 
with Van and Lanigan passing away, they're cashing in and repressing some of this stuff. I don't know. I don't, I've never go on the SST Superstore, but yeah, I I really thought that Other Worlds was originally released on Velvetone. Yeah, I thought so too. Re-released on SST 105 and Clairvoyance on Velvetone in 86. Screaming Trees made their SST debut in 87 with Even If and Especially When, SST 132. Last year's Invisible Lantern, SST 188. And two tours across the U.S. with Firehose rooted this amazing band in the rising American underground music scene. The Trees' psychedelic fuzzfest and unpolished appearance have won them the respect and admiration of club goers and critics. So, yeah, unfortunately, we didn't get to cover Clairvoyance really on the podcast. Not sure why that was never reissued by SST. Always struck me as a weird decision to do the EP, but but not the not Clairvoyance. Anyways, people can go back and check out. We had Gary Lee Connor on as a guest for the Other Worlds episode, and uh, Mark Pickrell on for Invisible Lantern. This uh, press release goes on. In the autumn months of 1988, Donna Dresch of Danger Mouse replaced Van Connor on bass for the Side Mousin tour. Obviously with, with Firehose. With Firehose, yeah. <laughs> but come December, Van went back in the band, and this original lineup completed the recording of the new LP. February 89 took the band to Europe for their first dates there, and April marks the release of Buzz Factory. With this album, the definitive Screaming Trees sound, cemented on Invisible Lantern, is used as a canvas which the band embellishes with even deeper layers of acidic guitars and eerie vocals. Washes of acoustic guitar trickle through Flower Web and Yard Trip Number 7, while Black Sun Morning delivers a stomp and shriek peon to the dawn of nothingness. These are figments of an active imagination, fed by long, silent nights amongst the forms and fields of Ellensburg, Washington. The end of the universe is buried somewhere deep in the caverns of your mind, and that's not far away. So this is kind of it for us in the Screaming Trees, Ryan. I get we'll be seeing them one more time in like 12 episodes for the... For the um, anthology? Anthology, but that's it. Yeah, we mentioned as well, leading up to this release, there was a period where Van was out of the band. Some of my favorite parts of this record is Van's bass playing. We'll talk about that during History Lesson Part 2. But I went back to Lanigan's book just to look at this era. He really doesn't talk about Buzz Factory at all. He just really mentions how it was going to be recorded with Jack. But he does have a couple of spiels in his book about Donna Dresch mm-hmm. in that period. Donna is like one of the very, very few people that Lanigan doesn't, have a problem with in his book i guess um he speaks quite highly about her yeah yeah i I was gonna say i haven't reread the book and i didn't reference it but if i'm remembering right they were actually pretty tight yeah so here i'll lay a couple of spiels uh from mark about donna and then i found one from donna about mark after he passed as well so check this out this is from mark's book sing backwards and weep We found Van's replacement in a woman from a band we had previously done shows with. Her name was Donna Dresch. She had the most compelling stage presence of anyone I had ever seen, like a more energetic female Keith Richards 
lit smoke hanging out of her mouth, swinging her bass from side to side and banging her blonde-haired head from start to finish of every show. When she was on stage, it was hard to take your eyes off her. I came to love playing live just because she kicked so much ass. Somehow, the symmetry was perfect, and the combination of Lee's 300-pound Angus Young impersonation and Donna's total rock and roll charisma on either side of me and Pix's eye-catching stick-tossing and twirling routine behind me made it an outrageous spectacle. Night after night, I watched from the stage as people thrilled to our new lineup. Donna had that rare quality of true magic rock appeal. I liked Van a lot and had enjoyed having him in the band, but Donna lifted our live performances to heights we had never reached with him. And then here's another quote that Donna references in a minute here. Like me, Donna preferred the companionship of women. So the minute we came off stage, the two of us were on the prowl for girls to if not sleep with, then at least talk to, look at, and lust after. She was as cool off stage as she was on it. And before long, we were tight pals. And then Mark goes on to mention how they, uh, they got Van back in the band. Here's Mark. As we started making plans to record what would be our final record for SST, Lee and Pickerel blindsided me. Van had not found married life to his liking. Lee and Pix had easily lured him back in behind my back. One day, they bluntly informed me that Donna was out. Van would be making the record with us, not her. It was three against one, they said, so I lost the vote. Mm. And then Mark gripes, of course, about how he didn't even get a vote in that decision. But anyways, to the point about Mark and Donna being very tight, after Mark passed away, Donna, she put out a spiel on her Instagram here talking about her time in Screaming Trees. Here's Donna. Being in the Screaming Trees was one of the most important times of my life. I was just a goofy punk kid playing goofy songs for my friends and then being part of the Screaming Trees gave me the confidence to say I am a musician and a performer. Some of my most cherished memories are the conversations Mark and I had late at night while driving to the next show, smoking cigarettes and listening to tapes of bands that blew our minds or scrubbing around left of the dial looking for college indie radio stations that may be broadcasting from some random town we were passing. We did some deep dives into music and feelings and what we were doing with our lives. And every night we played so hard. We gave every ounce of energy we had at those shows. I still laugh at the memory of collapsing backstage, panting and sweating and Mark holding his head going, I'm having an aneurysm. I laughed at him from the door and then he would laugh too. And then we would pop up and go back and play the encore. Then she references um, Mark's comment about how they would both be, you know, trying to, uh, you know, make connections with ladies after the show. <laughs> and this is what Donna said. Now, I can't confirm that is totally accurate. I don't remember ever being on the prowl, quote unquote, but it cracks me up a lot. He was so funny, smart and compassionate. And I'm so thankful for the time I got to spend with him. I'll miss him terribly. So a bit of a spiel from Mark and Donna about her time in the band while Van was out right before he got back in to record Buzz Factory. She also toured with Dinosaur Jr. after this, kind of post-Lou, pre-Mike Johnson. Yeah, that's mentioned in Mike Azarad's book as well. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, she went on to form Team Dresh, which is the band I would say she's most well-known for. 
Mm-hmm. When we spoke to Mark Pickerel on the Invisible Lantern episode, he described the the sessions at Spinhead as not particularly memorable, and he said the master tapes for that are lost. Um, I'm talking about the uh, the album. I guess they recorded or attempted to record between Invisible Lantern and Buzz Factory. Yeah, I've seen it referenced even as a double LP. Yep. So, yeah, I had a quick phone call with Mark this week to kind of pick his brain a little bit about about this era. You know, I was traveling, so I wasn't able to record it or anything, but but we we chatted on the phone for a while. And he confirmed to me that the Spinhead Sessions were going to be the next album. Like, it wasn't... I, I was wondering if they were maybe planned as demos, but he said, no, it was, it was going to be the album. So... The, Clearly, they were thinking at the time that the situation with Van leaving the band was going to be permanent. Yeah. You know, I, I believe his decision, if I'm remembering right, was because uh, of the birth of his son, Ulysses Van. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it even says in the thank you list on this record, welcome aboard, Ulysses. Mark reiterated to me that they they weren't super impressed with the sessions at Spinhead. He kind of, you know, said we didn't really feel at home there. And it's weird to think about this, but this is this record that we're listening to. And I guess the Spinhead sessions before that were the first recordings the band did that weren't at Velvetone. Yeah. Phil Newman gets a mention in the liners as well on this record. Yeah. He said, Mark Lanigan uh, in particular was really unhappy with, with the recordings. He talked a bit about how self-conscious Mark was about his vocals. And you'll hear a bit about that from Jack in the interview too. Now, I don't know if you check these out at all, but Gary Lee Connor has put some of these 88 Spinhead tracks up on his YouTube channel. If you just Google 88 Spinhead Lost SST album in there, you'll, you can find them. There's a track called Blackberry, and in the comments, like when he posted it, uh, Gary Lee says it's Donna Dresch on bass, but Mark's recollection, Mark Pickerel's recollection, was that Watt came in and played bass on that track. Whoa, that'd so, be cool. I'd be, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that, listening to it. If Ga- I can pick out the Watt-isms? Yeah. Gary Lee also mentioned it was to be a double album, he says, which would have been incredible if you think about it. Oh, yeah. Listening to, to that track, Blackberry, I can see where Mark Lanigan may, might have had some issues. It's not that the vocal is bad, he just sings it weird. It's not like his trademark gravelly croon. It's more of a higher register Mark Arm sounding thing. Like, it's a cool track. Lots of noisy guitar and some cool samples on it. I just don't think Lanigan had really found his his signature style that he was really comfortable with yet, still at this point. Yeah, well, I was remarking to myself listening to Buzz Factory at how much higher register Lanigan there is on this record, mm-hmm. and it sounds great, but, it, but I agree, like, that's not where he ended up settling into. Yeah. There's a version of the song Subtle Poison, that's on this record uh, as a, you know, posted as a, as spinhead track. It's a little bit slower. It kind of gives a a bit more of a menacing feel compared to the one on this record, which is more rockin'. And same with the spinhead version of end of the universe. It almost sounds like the tape is dragging or something. It's a little slower. Mark told me the only version of the, these recordings that he thinks he's ever heard were rough mixes on cassette in the van. There's also a couple tracks such as White Plastic God Heap and When I'm Gone, which came out later in 1990 on Gary Lee 
um, and as he and Van's younger brothers, uh, Patrick's excellent one-off project, The Purple Outside. The album was called Mystery Lane. It came out on New Alliance Records in 1990, uh, kind of at the same time as Van's amazing Solomon Grundy album. And if I'm remembering right, the idea was for Mark's debut solo album, which also came out in 1990, The Winding Sheet, to be a part of this solo project trilogy. Yep. Um, But that ended up coming out on Sub Pop. So Gary Lee has that Purple Outside record up on Bandcamp, if, if people listening haven't heard it. It's awesome. And I think some of these songs that would have been on the double album ended up on that project. Yeah, I think that's right. Gary Lee sounds like he was, well, it still is, I guess. And even Jack alludes to this in the interview. Gary's a very prolific songwriter. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like, in the YouTube comments, Gary Lee says the Spinhead Sessions were fall of 88, and Invisible Lantern came out September 88. So, you know, like, they were recording a double album as Invisible Lantern came out. And this came out, like, March of 89, so... Somewhere in there, this press release says April. Any way you slice it, six months minimum, like six months or less after Invisible Lantern came out, Buzz Factory came out. Feels like he cranked out like 50 songs within 12 months almost. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, and Mark told me that Gary Lee demoed nearly everything, sometimes doing vocals himself, sometimes with Mark Lanigan doing a scratch vocal. He, said, he told me Mark was encouraged to take creative license with the lyrics and that Gary Lee wasn't super, you know, pr- precious about his lyrics. He didn't really have a problem with Mark. You know, as Mark put it, Lanigan would kind of take issue if, if something was, for example, psychedelic just for the sake of being psychedelic. <laughs> you know, he would, he would try to make the lyrics more personal. He, he told me when he thinks back to the recording sessions the band did you know, they were very well rehearsed going into the studio, usually because they had limited time. So contrary to popular opinion, he doesn't recall a lot of fighting in the studio. He says most of the fighting was in the van, <laughs> you know, when they were living on top of each other. Uh, he told me they had a strong desire to be as efficient and productive as possible in the studio. I think that's mm-hmm. how he put it. And we're always really focused on the work, and that's probably why he doesn't have strong recollections of the recording sessions, because you know it was just heads down doing work. He yeah. also he also said that the downside to that was because of all the prep work they put in, there wasn't you know a lot of room for spontaneity in the studio. Basically, what you hear on the record is how they were performing these songs. Um, not much in the way of experimentation in the studio, I suppose. I did find in Classic Rock Magazine, Ryan, and uh, a thing on, it might have been when Lanigan passed, I'm not sure, but it was um, by this guy, Philip Wilding. There's a quote in there from Lanigan on Gary Lee where he says, he was really into a psychedelic thing, which I wasn't into. Mm-hmm. And you kind of get that in Lanigan's book, that that was the source of the, a lot of their conflict, maybe, was... Lanigan just wasn't feeling a lot of these lyrics. Yeah, at least in part. You know, when I was flipping through Lanigan's book to get ready for the show and seeing some of those passages where he's just, you know, very negative, it's too bad, kind of. You know, I mean, I get it. I get it. And and how many bands 
do you know where it's just perfect harmony all the time? It's just when I listen to this record this week and I go, it's so just undeniably excellent. Yeah. And it's, it didn't, it doesn't necessarily like tarnish the album for me. It's just, ah, you know. Well, I think it's a bit of a dark cloud that hangs over the yeah. the trees for me, unfortunately. Well, I think like the as we've gotten into these records, I've kind of realized, you know, that I I don't know if he outright says this, but the there's a reason I think he more highly rates the epic albums and the stuff that came later, and it's because he started contributing to lyrics. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I think that's right. In this classic rock article it says that and this is kind of contrary to to what mark was saying maybe about conflict in the studio or whatever it says the problems often turn physical during sessions for buzz factory producer jack and dino was surprised to walk out of the control room to see van and gary lee gary lee wrestling on the floor i had to run out and move a bunch of mic stands says Andino. it was like clash of the titans I looked at the other guys in the band and they were like, yeah, they do this all the time. It was scary and serious, but it was funny too. <laughs> I you know, that's brothers, man. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Brothers can do that. It's like, uh, the Robinson brothers. Yeah. Black crows. Yeah. All right. Speaking of Jack and Dino, let's throw it over to Jack. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Jack and Dino. Jack, thanks for being on the show. A pleasure, sir. Okay, so I want to backtrack a bit with you. You were born in Southbury, Connecticut? No, I grew up there, actually, left when I was 15. But, uh, yeah, I was born in a city not far from there in a hospital. Okay. So, uh, that's, uh, but yeah, I'm native, native of Connecticut, actually. Moved here in 74 with my parents, because my mom is actually from out here. She was born in Oregon, Ah. and she always wanted to come back. So essentially, your formative years or your high school years were in Seattle. Yeah, Bainbridge Island, which is sort of a suburb. What came first, drums or guitar? Drums. What was it about the drums? Was it a specific band or artist that got you interested in playing the drums? I just have no idea. I, I tried to play guitar first and just was, was got a little frustrated and uh, discovered that i had a natural knack for drumming so i got a cheap drum set and started jamming with people that was the quickest way uh the quickest way into uh, getting into a, a band scenario but you know my first actual band that i played live with was as a bass player mm. and um that went on for a while and it wasn't until i started skinyard with daniel house in 85 that i actually had a band that i played guitar in and what about your interest in, in engineering and producing? I We've talked to a number of engineers, producers. It seems like it's one of two things. Either it was born out of necessity or it was some people just really early on had a interest in capturing sound. Yeah, I, I just had to, I had an interest in capturing sound. I used to record into a cassette deck and I would bounce the signal between two cassette decks and, you know, mix the left and right channel using a Y cable and go into the left channel of cassette deck number two while recording onto the right channel of cassette deck number two. And I could, I could do that back and forth a couple of times before the hiss got crazy. So when I finally had a chance to get a four track machine, it was like, you know, revelatory. So yeah, I was always, um, 
you know, I was learning how to record myself because I figured, well, I can play the drums okay. I can play the bass okay. I can get away with playing some guitar. Well, why can't I just record myself? So I immediately was, you know, learning how to record myself in a basement. And, uh, you know, here we are <laughs> 50 years later. I was going to uh, say ground floor four track recording. I love, yeah, I, love I had like a tight. Yeah, I ended up with a Tascam 3340S, which still works. I replaced the pinch roller. I still have it here. Uh, so, um, yeah, no, I mean, I started recording myself, and that just led to... Uh, the thing was, I always had recording happening. Even when I was jamming with people, I always had a couple of mics in the room to record it, even the worst, most horrible jams. Um, because the idea in my head was that if you don't record it, you have no proof that anything actually happened. Right. You know, so so listening to the recordings, I was slowly able to build my own confidence as a musician. Do you think back then you made a distinction, or maybe you still don't, between an engineer and a producer and, and what those what the two roles do? Well, I had no idea. I mean, you start out engineering, you've got a band in front of you, there's some equipment around you, you're you're recording them. And as soon as you start offering any kind of opinion about anything, uh, you're kind of crossing into the producing area. And that includes just telling people when they should tune up, you know, or that, you know, maybe they're playing it way faster now than when they first walked into the building, you know, just common sense observations that might be welcome. Technically, that's all producing. It's a gray area. I mean, you know, as soon as you go in there and grab the drum key and say, let me tune your snare a little bit better. And you're technically producing at that point. Yeah. So uh, I never really distinguished. I, I didn't call myself a producer until other people started telling me that I was. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, oh, I guess, I guess I've, there I am. I guess I'm a producer, you know? So, I mean, now it's obvious, but, you know, I, I, the thing when you're, when you're starting out as an engineer with only a year or two experience, you don't, calling yourself a producer seems a little bit, you know, a little full of yourself, really. I mean, what kind of experience do you have then? You're still learning how to get good tones. So, uh, you know, so producer slash engineer. I mean, I'm still an engineer through and through, but when people want more input from me, I have it. Well, being a, <laughs> a musician and a songwriter in your own right certainly lends itself to, to that aspect of, the, of making a record. Being quite familiar with drums, because I've ended up playing drums in bands for years at a time, and as well as bass playing, and as well as guitarist, and even being the lead vocalist in a band for mm -hmm. several years, uh, I'm pretty familiar with what's on the other side of the glass from the control room, you know what I mean? I mean, I can go in there, I can tune a drum set, I can tweak the knobs on the amp and say, it's going to record better if we turn up this mid-range knob a little, or... You know, your your bass, the intonation in your bass is a little bit off that third string. We need to adjust the bridge saddle. Uh, the amp, it needs a little biasing. The bias sounds totally wrong. Let's see if one of those tubes isn't working right. Uh, there's all this stuff that, that you know, from, from my own playing and my own experience in bands and in recording my own bands, I, I just have this, this background that allows me to just jump in and solve problems immediately that you know when people are recording so it's all it's all the, the the experience of being being a musician and being familiar with all these instruments firsthand it's a huge advantage mm -hmm. when you're 
recording and producing. It's huge because, you know, at this point, I've made 800 records and the typical musician is going to be lucky if he makes two or three albums in his For whole sure. career. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm still, what I'm saying is that after 37 years of recording, I'm starting to get good at it. <laughs> <laughs> just starting. Yeah. I just feel like I finally am figuring some things out. Yeah. Okay. Um, you mentioned playing bass in a band. Would that have been uh, Terry Lee Hale and the Ones, or are you talking about a band previous to that still? No, that was that might have been one of the very first bands. No, the the first band I gigged with in public was a band called Food. I played one show in, I believe it was around December of 1981, in this band called Food, and then I moved out of Seattle for two and a half years and lost touch with them. And when I came back to Seattle, I hooked up with Terry Lee Hale through an ad in the back of our local music magazine, The Rocket. And I ended up playing in his um, trio called The Ones, which was kind of punk bluegrass is the only way I could put it. It was the most ungrunge thing imaginable. Of course, you know, we didn't have grunge yet, but it definitely was kind of an outlier in the Seattle music scene. I'm not sure what impact we made, but we played a heck of a lot of shows in a couple of years. But I was the bass player. He was the songwriter. I didn't have any input. Right. Um, and I played in a sort of a, I would say, I can't call it a hippie band because it's the wrong era, but it was some lovely, friendly people I met who had a band called Actual Size. And I played bass with them for a while. And it was kind of a jammy sort of a folk band, if you will. And it was something to do. And mm -hmm. they were they were nice people and I had a good time. But then, you know, the guitar thing was bugging me. I thought I need to be playing guitar in a band. And that led to Skin Yard. Right. Uh, the band Food, was this original music or was it covers? The band I played with called Food was original music, and in fact, it was improvised. Ah. There were lyrics, but the music was improv. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the drummer and I would just set up a groove, and the two guitarists would do strange noises, and whoever was singing would recite the lyrics. It was a very odd band. It was very 1981. I mean, kind of new wavy. Um, they were very inspired by the Talking Heads. Mm. And... Uh, you know, bass and drum grooves, uh, no problem for me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, Do whatever you want to do. Yeah. Okay, uh, you mentioned moving away for a few years. That was to uh, work in a shipyard, is that right? Correct. Yeah, I was working at the Naval Shipyard in Bremerton, Washington as a civilian electrical engineer. That must have been an experience. Uh, somewhat soul-sucking job. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was the first thing I got out of college and it paid well and i put most of my money in the bank for two and a half years before basically just walking out after i think two years and seven months it was interesting i would never go back to a job like that yeah but it was something to do before reciprocal were you doing recordings at home with bands like i know you recorded uh your own bands like crypt kicker five was, was that would that have been at reciprocal or were you doing some stuff at home Crip Kicker 5 was a band I played drums in for five years. It was kind of a surfy band. Um, I did all my recording of those, most of those bands that you would mention, I, I recorded at Reciprocal. Now, there were some early recordings. I did have a basement four-track setup that was pretty good um, in uh, 85. I, Reciprocal did not open until summer of 86. So for about a, a good year, couple of years there from summer of 84 to summer of 86 i was recording on my four track in the basement and i actually had uh my own band skin yard were kind of the guinea pigs in 85 i mean some of our very first recordings 
including a few songs on our first studio album are actually from the four track mm. uh setup i did some demos with some other seattle bands uh 64 spiders vexed uh kim thile and i did a few things in my basement um because he was my neighbor i did a four track recording for soundgarden actually very early on uh although i brought my four track machine to their practice space and set it up when we did that uh that was when chris was living with andy wood actually in a tiny house yeah i did you know i did a lot of basement recording for people i would charge five bucks an hour and i you know i wasn't terribly careful about keeping track of the hours it was just something to do you yeah. know um but and then when i had a chance to jump into a real studio it was like a very easy transition were you ever at triangle we've talked about triangle a little bit we've had the pell-mell guys on the show and and steve fisk yeah the triangle thing is interesting because um for instance i just spent some time remixing the first napalm beach record which was recorded i believe in 84 uh and Pulling out the track sheets from the two inch, I saw that much of it was recorded at Triangle. Mm. Um, so, yes, I set foot in Triangle once, I think in 83 or 84, because uh, I was living nearby. After I left the shipyard, I moved back into Seattle uh, in, um, let me think, 81, 82, 83, it would have been like late 83, I moved back to Seattle. Uh, and I was living literally walking distance from Triangle Recording. Of course, I didn't know that it was Triangle Recording at the time until a friend of mine from Brack back in Bremerton informed me that he was recording at a studio in Seattle and that it was close to my house. So I walked down and said hello and poked my head in the door. And I don't remember much about it, except it's it's not a very big studio and it wasn't very memorable. But yeah, I did get to to set foot in Triangle at least once uh before it mysteriously went under hmm. and the owner disappeared to montana with all the equipment in the middle of the night oh boy <laughs> which was when i i got wind of that and uh chris hanzik and i were able to get a hold of the landlord and uh assume the lease and take over the building and rename it reciprocal recording in summer of 86. so everything so was a strange was, story everything was gone the board and everything yeah everything Wow. Uh, like literally i i got a phone call from an engineer from triangle who said i heard you guys were looking for a building well and he described it to me he had gone you know there were a few people in town who had keys to the building who were engineers who worked there he said yeah i went there and there was bill had basically pulled up with a u-haul in the middle of the night bill stuber i think was the owner yeah and uh had just taken all the equipment out of the control room everything just threw it in a U-Haul and moved to Montana. <laughs> just decided he was done having a studio, uh, and uh, just left. And um, it was it, it's it's still a little mysterious. I don't quite understand what happened or why. But anyway, we ended up well, taking over the space. Thank goodness it did happen. Um, yeah. If I understand it right, you were you kind of used the reciprocal name prior to to taking over the triangle triangle building. It wasn't me. Chris Hanzik was the main proprietor of Reciprocal Recording. And uh, he came up with the name. And he previously had a studio in a different area of Seattle, just a few miles away from there. Uh, another area, an industrial area that we call uh, Interbay. He had a studio there in 84 for about a year, something like that. And he called it Reciprocal Recording. And he had the same 8-track machine in there. And um, 
but uh, the the building the landlord decided to sell the building and he, he had to move out hmm. and uh so for a, about a, a period there chris hanzik didn't have a studio which was when he made the deep six compilation record that you may have heard about yep. um he had to do that at a studio called ironwood hmm. uh because he had no building um and it was when we were recording skin yard in the ironwood building for chris hanzik's deep six compilation that I said, hey, I'd like to work in a studio. And he said, hey, I'd like to find a building and reopen my studio. Uh-huh. And I was the one who found the the triangle building was vacant. And I called Chris, let's jump on this, sure. you know. So so Chris was the main owner of Reciprocal. I, I did not own, you know, he owned most of the equipment. I would say he was the principal owner. Technically, we were partners at first, but eventually I I just said, well, you know, I'm not really I'm not invested in this particularly. I'll just be the house engineer. Mm-hmm. And that was fine. Yeah. Uh, where and when did you first meet Daniel House? Um, through a mutual friend named Tom Herring, um, who was playing in a trio with Daniel uh, called Feedback. And the drummer was Matt Cameron. Oh, this is this Feedback around. with two Ds? Uh, well, no, it's it's spelled Feedback. It's yeah. just the, the D and the B are... are uh, it's hard to explain really. I mean, the, it's, but then the, it, it is spelled feedback. It doesn't have two D's. Okay. Um, but they had an instrumental trio, uh, and they played a few places around Seattle. I got to see them a couple of times and Tom was an old friend of mine from my Bainbridge Island days, actually. Um, and he had moved to Seattle well before I had, and he had hooked up with these guys and they had a very cool little trio and he introduced me to his rhythm section and ultimately feedback broke up and um daniel hooked up with me and liked my home recordings and said well why don't we start a band i'll see if i can get that drummer that we had in feedback so pretty soon daniel and myself and matt cameron were jamming in my basement next to my four track machine so then it was just a matter of how do we get a singer and then you know ben mcmillan came along a few months later Mm -hmm. do you know how the connection with toxic shock in tucson happened I don't. Uh, Daniel made that connection somehow. He was Daniel was very good at, at networking, uh, which was you know took a lot more work before the internet. I, I you know his his phone bills were always fairly astronomical <laughs> because you know for one thing at first we were booking our own tours and our own shows and so forth, and uh, just everything was expensive, long distance. There were no cell phones. It was. Uh, Somehow, you know, we put out our first record ourselves, and somehow uh, Bill Sassenberger from Toxic Shock got wind of it in Tucson. I think it was Tucson and uh, Tucson, Arizona, and he offered to put out our second record, which was Hallowed Ground, and and a single or two, actually. So that, that worked out for us pretty well. And from then, we were able to, to jump over to um, Cruise Records, actually, which is technically sst i don't know if you're going to wind up talking about cruise records on that's this kind of podcast. the plan yeah. yeah you you should end up there because that's kind of the that was kind of the next step and it was literally the same number the same office the same people answered the phone yeah. you know uh you know just like for some reason greg decided that he needed a new a new label name to try and create some new interest right uh and uh kind of retired the sst name or it looked like he was trying to except with the pre-existing SST bands, but you've probably talked about this already. Yeah. It seems like the cruise bands were kind of active bands, 
not necessarily yeah. the case with S- with the SST during this era. They were more like studio projects. Yeah, the bands that were on cruise at the time, there were like four of them. There were us, there was all, there was the chemical people, and I'm probably forgetting one, and my apologies to whoever it was. Probably Big Drill Car. Uh, yes, Big Drill Car, and all four bands were touring actually around that time. So that was like they had you know, they had something to work with. Seems like the bands were packaged up quite a bit as well. I don't know what that means. Actually, like uh, for, sh- I, for I shows. Oh, you mean they'd play together on, yeah. on bills? Yeah. That happened often. I think Skinyard was kind of the outlier. And we, we yeah. played a few times with some of those bands, but not that often. I think with Bill, Big Drill Car a couple of times. I don't think we ever played with all. Um, and we probably played with chemical people at least once when we were in California, but I, I couldn't swear to it. Mm-hmm. What were those early skin yard tours like pretty bare bones? I'm assuming at that point, pretty bare bones. I don't think we got a hotel a single time until maybe <laughs> our third tour or maybe fourth tour or something like that. No, we slept on people's floors or in the van pretty much exclusively. I mean, there were, there was a lot of you know, you meet someone you know or whatever. Now, we would typically, you get to a club and you either, you know, you make it known immediately to the promoter that, hey, we need a place to stay tonight, or you basically just get up on stage and say, hey, thanks for coming to our show. Anybody got a spare floor? Yeah. There'd always be somebody who'd be like, oh, yeah, my parents are out of town this weekend. You can come stay at my place. We met a lot of, like, very entertaining people and scenarios that way some good some not yeah <laughs> but uh but you know that was touring it was entertaining we were young uh and uh it was, it was quite a graduation when i think after three or four tours we got so like we'd get a hotel room maybe every third or fourth day or something we'd go you know let's all take some showers <laughs> <laughs> always a good and, idea uh, yeah in always a, a good together. idea yeah right exactly <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, those were the days, you know. Uh, okay, any recollection of when you've you might have first encountered the screaming trees? You know, uh, they were talked about in Seattle. I'd heard about them because you know I was part of the music scene, being in Skin Yard and playing shows all the time. The trees didn't come and play in Seattle that often. They weren't like a local band that would play every weekend or every other weekend. You know, so it was kind of a special event if the Screaming Trees came to town. Um, first of all, everyone knew they were on SST, which gave them a sort of a sort of an additional stature, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, because they'd been on SST for a couple of years before. I think, you know, right around. Oh, let me think, actually. Who got them onto uh, SST? Was it Soundgarden who told Greg Ginn to listen to the Screaming Trees, or was it the other way around? I think, I think maybe, it might have been the other, maybe maybe the other way Fisk, around. Maybe. Ah, it might have been the trees who got him to listen to Soundgarden. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of blanking on this, but I, I just remember, um, I, I don't know if I got to see the Screaming Trees before I recorded Buzz Factor. It's possible I saw them play once. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But my memory is not very good about that. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly when I met them, but let's just say we had a lot of friends in common. And Skinyard was already affiliated with SST through Cruise. Mm. And Greg said, hey, you know, I, you know, why, why, why don't you record this band? Um, and they got a hold of me and they said, yeah, we, we tried to record a record in California. Uh, something went wrong and we want to try and record it with you in Seattle. So Rod Doak was, I believe, their tour manager and or friend of house uh, guy 
I know right. he worked he, on he worked on the previous records. Was he involved? Yeah, he in was bus? hanging. Yeah, he was like he was like the the uh, he was like the gopher, you know, that went yeah. to the went to get the snacks and whatnot. Yeah, he was around. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the album, the liner notes, anyway, say it was recorded December of '88. Any clue at all on how long the sessions would have been? Like, would it back then? Would you were you still doing these kind of forty-eight hour marathon sessions, or were you kind of spacing? Yeah, we were. Now we were doing pretty fast sessions, but because SST was paying for it, we probably uh, did. You know, it was probably more like six or seven days or something like that. I'm thinking I could double check that, but it would definitely be. You know, it wasn't a two day thing. It was like I'm thinking four, five, six, seven days, something along that line, probably enough time that I had. You know, that I didn't have to feel like I was rushing it or mixing the whole thing overnight or something like that. There were too many records I did in those days that, you know, I would literally end up mixing the, you know, with certain punk bands recording on an eight track, you could get away with it. But, you know, the trees were a little more nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Buzz Factor came out all right. I don't have any any regrets about that record. It, it was about as good as we could do at that time with that equipment, with that budget. Right. I don't want to put you on the spot here, Jack, but we've had a number of Van Connors friends on the show show over the years, but nobody since his passing. I'm wondering if you have anything you want to say about Van. I don't, okay. uh, other than I, I miss him terribly, but uh, in some ways there was kind of a decline going on. I think he was drinking a lot, mm. and um, it was it was difficult interacting with him because he was he was kind of I guess, uh, unreliable would be a good way of putting it. Mm. You know, it it was just difficult to communicate with him. Um, but then you'd get a phone call out of the blue and he would just talk your ear off and, you know, it might've been a little bipolar thing going on. I'm not really sure, but it's, it was quite disturbing. And, you know, I, I will be probably going to his memorial, which will be coming up soon. Mm. Um, it's it's really kind of a shock to lose uh, Mark Lanigan and Van Connor in the space of a year. It's like boom, gone. Uh, I don't like it. You know, nobody likes death. You don't like it when you're you when you get older. As I am no longer a spring chicken, and you know your people that you just assumed would always be around one by one start dropping away. It's rather sobering, yeah. Shall we say? Uh, and I don't drink, and it's still sobering. Mark Lanigan, possibly one of the best examples ever, most successful examples of like, you know, the scenario where you're starting a band with your friend group, and you pick the one guy who doesn't play an instrument to to be the singer by default. Well, I think he started as the drummer. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, and then some, you know, probably Van was singing, you know, or, or Lee or, or, you know, and, uh, you know, they said, wait a minute, maybe you can sing. I never saw Lanigan play drums, though. It would have been interesting to see. You know, it was around the same time, right after Buzz Factor, Buzz Factory, that I was working on the first Mark Lanigan record, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and this, the single that they that the Screaming Trees did for Sub Pop was right after that as well. So I ended up working with, and I also did a Solomon Grundy record for um, for Van, which came out technically on New Alliance, but that was part of SST at that point as well. Um, 
you might be able to cover that at some point yeah. in the podcast. We, we've talked about it. It's an excellent album. Yeah, that was another one that we probably did in four days. Yeah, did, do you know if Mark like worked fast on his vocals, or would it you know was did it take some time to do his vocals? It took some time. Uh, it always took some time to do vocals with Mark because he was very self-critical. Mm. Uh, he was extremely self-critical. Like you know, he would do a few takes, and then you know a little later he'd be like, "No, it's complete crap. I need to do this again." You know, he just was the worst self-critic ever because the takes would be brilliant i mean he's mark lanigan he yeah. could sing the phone book and it would be amazing and um but you know and this got even more true when i started working on his solo stuff he would just beat himself up relentlessly about brilliant vocal takes mm -hmm. and the problem was in in those days i'm you know i'm recording to analog tape and um sometimes you run out of tracks and you want to do another vocal track you've got to erase one of the old ones yeah so and how do you you know erasing a mark landing and vocal track is not done lightly <laughs> but you think well i've got two takes here on tracks 23 and 24 i'm going to have to erase one of them in order for him to do it again which one do i erase right yeah you know anyway that was the the good old days of analog reporting there's a few songs on this record where the vocals are doubled. Do you think that would have been something you would have suggested? Probably not. I think it's something that they had done before and uh, that they were comfortable with doing. And uh, I wouldn't have twisted anybody's arm to do it, but it wouldn't have bothered me to do it either. Mm -hmm. It's something that Skinyard did all the time. Ben McMillan always insisted on it. Um, but some singers, uh, like you didn't see Chris Cornell do that much. Um, certain singers sound better doubled than they, they do single and uh mark could have gone either way actually i think it's it's a way of like it's kind of a security blanket it's sort of mm -hmm. it takes the imperfections in the vocal take and averages them out between the two takes it sort right. of smooths it a bit so if you want smooth that's one way to do it um and he was very insecure about his singing it's just how he was which is funny to think about yeah what was your perception of the band at the time? Like, it seems like, I mean, we've had Gary Lee Connor on the show before on previous records. Anyways, he was definitely seemed like the main songwriter in the band. Do you, did you feel like he was maybe leading the recordings or was it a kind of a group effort? You know, I knew that he was the main songwriter in the end because I, I'd heard demos that he had made where he would play all the instruments and even do the vocals of the, the, the whole song in its entirety. He did that for quite a few of the songs. There were a few that had some input from Van, and I think Mark occasionally chipped in a little bit on the lyrics, but I think probably 75% of the songwriting was Gary Lee at the time. Um, but it's funny because at the time, you know, in the studio, he wasn't obviously leading things. Hmm. His contribution was he'd write the songs but then the band functioned as a band when they were in the studio playing um i didn't get the feel that anybody was saying oh you know you're doing my part wrong um everybody just they were all it was kind of a very much of an all for one kind of vibe they were all they all had the same goal and they all knew the songs and they just went in and banged it out um there wasn't a lot of ambiguity about oh should we do this two times or should we do this four times no they were tight mm -hmm. they were ready to do it and you know mark wasn't writing the lyrics but he was he would pick the ones that you know that he liked like if he didn't like the lyric he wasn't going to do the song he's like sure. no that's that's a dumb song i don't want to do that you know so 
Lee would go write 10 more songs and then they would pick three of those. I think he probably wrote like seven or eight songs for everyone that the band hmm. would pick. That's well, the, if the you want to be able to sing it with conviction, right? You have to- exactly. And that was, that was Mark's thing is like, okay, this, I could sing this, you know, yeah. he definitely had that opinion, but once he was committed, he just, he would do it. Amazing guitar sound on this record, a very live sound. Do you remember? I mean, obviously did they record as a band? Do you think? Yeah, they probably, they set up as a three piece in the big room at reciprocal. It wasn't that big, but I had gobos and, uh, the only things overdubbed were the vocals and the solos. Um, and I think the rest of it was done as a, as a three piece live on the floor. Gary Lee had this amazing knack for making his solos sound like they were being played backwards. <laughs> he did. You're right. And there might be some backwards guitar somewhere on the record. I don't remember, but, but you're right. He just had a, he had a knack for that. It's true. Mm -hmm. I was listening to the, to the record yesterday and I, I, I was laughing to myself. I, I, I bet there's no engineer in history who's recorded more uh, guitar played played through a wah pedal than you. <laughs> That's hard to say, you know. Uh, it's it's people don't there aren't as many people using wah as you would think. Hmm. Um, I use it myself quite a bit, but uh, you know, I, I don't see it as often as you would imagine. But yeah, I've recorded. But I mean, after like almost forty years of recording guitar bands, I'm sure it adds up. Mm hmm. There's some acoustic guitar on this record too, which is always a nice touch. I, I feel like that, uh, you know, having an acoustic guitar behind electric guitars really gives it that classic rock sound. It does. That goes all the way back to the first couple of Allman Brothers records in the Buffalo Springfield and all that stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a classic, uh, you know, it adds a little percussive jangle. It's almost like a percussion instrument driving the track mm -hmm. along because you don't hear the notes as much as the strumming. Um, I always enjoy it when people want to do it. It doesn't work so well with super sludgy guitars, but with cleaner guitars, you can get away with it. It actually blends nicely. The cover photo for the record. Do you know, is that like a location in Seattle? Do you know anything about that? The factory image or whatever? Yeah. Uh, I know nothing about the cover whatsoever. I do know the, the, the little triangle, the little diamond shaped picture of the band on the back was a Polaroid. It literally just took a Polaroid photo in the studio and mailed it to greg and that became the band photo hmm. i know because i somewhere have an outtake from it they they took this other photo that's kind of bad and they crumpled it up and threw it in the garbage and of course i fished it out <laughs> uh but um yeah it was a polaroid picture so that's the only band photo on there well it's an amazing sounding record i i read an interview this is an older interview where you actually singled the the record out as as one that stands out in your mind anyways of maybe like your earlier recordings uh, as one that you were you were really happy with yeah one of the few of the earlier ones that i'm not embarrassed by much hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was hit or miss i mean i'd only been engineering for like two three years at that point right. so and you know under conditions of like okay we're gonna make an album in three days yeah okay go <laughs> and uh you know sometimes it works and sometimes it's you you wish you had a little more time and uh you know i had to work within the constraints presented to me and uh I got lucky enough times that I don't really, uh, I'm not too horrified by, by some of what I did back in those days. Some of it, I listen and I go, damn, I could probably remix this now and it would be a lot better. And I've actually gotten to do that on some of the old records from that era, which has been quite gratifying. You know, there are 
various like a, a green river record i got to remix in the sound garden record and i'm working on some fluid records right now mm. uh, some of these are records i didn't actually record but you know like yeah. like me they were done by people who had to make an album in three days and you know now you know there's interest enough to to justify giving these things a little anyway that's another story yeah well, stick to the subject here well i i've it's curious that you say that. I feel like a lot of, you know, engineers nowadays are, are doing a lot more mixing and remixing than as opposed to engineering new records. I'm doing a lot of mixing. And the reason is a lot of people have home studios. Yeah. Uh, and I get the phone call. Basically, when people take it as far as they can in their basement, yeah. then they say, well, let's call in professional help. Now. <laughs> we got the tracks down. We don't know how to mix it. Is It's a much more... Uh, you know, obscure skill. Actually, mm -hmm. it's it's quite. It's not as easy know, it's, as it's, people think. Maybe when they're making these recordings. No, I mean tracking is. You know, if you set good mics in the right place and record flat, you're probably pretty likely to get a usable recording. The mixing is the that's where the rubber hits the road. Uh, so yeah, I end up doing a lot of mixes for people, and I do a lot of mastering too. That's probably half my income right now. Mm. Yeah, which is a much less of a time commitment for me actually. Okay, uh, you've remixed a bunch of your old records, both Skinyard. I, I believe Beyond the Eye is the last one of the Skinyard records that needed to be updated. Yeah, I did an updated version of it, and I renamed it because the old version of it is still up online. Mm. And uh, I think SST put it up, actually. But um, but I wanted to have my own version of it because I felt like it needed to it needed to be it just needed to be better and uh so i just i put it up on my bandcamp site and left it at that and retitled it as beyond the eye the original album is inside the eye and right. it's still it's still available in its original form and uh for those who are interested so i sort of made my own my own version of it and i did that to one of my other solo records as well the uh indina's earthworm record this was one these are covid projects is what they were i had a lot of time yeah. to kill um <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, anyways. some uh, some amazing stuff came out of people's vaults during during the pandemic for sure. <laughs> it's true actually. I got a 10-minute warning record to remix which nobody had ever heard. Mm -hmm. uh, now that was another Seattle, you know, pre-grunge band that didn't manage to get a record out. Well, now there's a record. I love doing that stuff. It's always, you know, it's pretty interesting dealing with people who like you know, yeah, we recorded this 40 years ago. We don't really remember what it sounded like. You know, here's the tapes. Yeah. <laughs> and I go, okay. And I put them in my food dehydrator. I have to tell you, I do a lot of tape baking. Mm. You can see right behind me here, uh, right there is the Snackmaster dehydrator, ah. uh, which I use for... I thought that was a lamp. No, it has its... You, you bake tapes in it. These are these. It has these trays in it. It has these trays in it that you can, they're actually a perfect size. They're 11 inches, oh, yeah. 11, 12 inches. They're perfect size to put a reel of tape in right there. And you can stack them up and uh, basically run it at 125 degrees for, um, you know, seven or eight hours and then put the tape on. And where it was shedding, it won't be shedding anymore. Oh. Uh, and sometimes you have to do it twice. But, um, you know, any tape older than about 2005 at this point, I found 
is is going to be shedding horribly just mm. brown oxide coming off all over the heads and all over the the guides and you have to bake it and uh, so probably, that food it's it's just part of the deal so that dehydrator gets a lot of use these days i bet yeah probably how the tapes were stored probably play, plays a bit of a factor in that as well yeah how they were stored is part of it and most people don't store them in a hermetically sealed temperature controlled absolutely dehumidified space right it's usually somebody's basement yep <laughs> almost always and you know this is the northwest and so basements are damp yeah so yeah you know it is what it is any other vault projects for your like for you you your solo albums or uh any skin yard stuff or any of your other bands you know uh that's that that well is just about scraped dry at this point there is a project called Basement Sessions that I was involved with for a while with uh, one of my former drummers who's sadly deceased now, but he did a lot of recording in his basement and I've been working through that stuff. Um, I play on some of it. Skin Yard, we were thinking of doing some kind of a, like a, a box set of seven inches or something like that. Of, of We found a few, there's a couple obscurities I found that we could stick in there wow. that nobody's heard. But there's not much left from that era, uh, you know, that's that hasn't been been pretty well pulled out and remixed and remastered and so forth. Now, I think what's going to happen next is you're going to see Gary Lee Connor, who has become kind of the de facto um, keeper of the, the keeper of the flame of the Screaming Trees, really. Um, I think he's going to start you're going to start seeing some archival Screaming Trees stuff coming out, uh, I think. Because and and he's been recording his own stuff nonstop the whole time. Yeah, there's all kinds of he has a Bandcamp page. I think there's all kinds of Gary Lee Connor stuff you can hear if you want. Yeah. But I think he's going to be there's there's going to be some Screaming Trees material. I think that's 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 going to be needing some attention. And I offered to help if if need be because, like I said, I do a lot of this forensic stuff and a lot of remastering and so forth. So you know we'll see what happens. Um, He's got to, of course, work with the Van Conner estate and right. the, the Mark Lanigan estate, whoever that is. Uh, but maybe something will happen there. I know. I know Gary Lee has been has been thinking about it. It's time to sort of, you know, take care of the yeah the legacy, the legacy, as it were. I mean, nobody's watching it. Yeah. Well, especially when people start passing away, it really gets you thinking about documentation. Right. Yeah, it does. It yeah. does. So I think, you know, there may be some there may be some screaming trees related uh, archival activity in the future. Hmm. Will there be a follow up to set myself on fire? Not soon. Uh, I'm pretty slow on the um, solo records. You know, I've, I'm averaging about one per decade, which, you know, isn't doesn't look good right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, my first solo record came out in 88. The next one was 92. The next one was 2005 and the next one was 2022 so uh you know do the math yep. <laughs> i don't you know i mean if i started writing songs for another solo record right now it'd probably take me until i'm 75 to finish it so that's not to say never yep uh <laughs> but the world isn't really beating my door down for another solo record right now but i am deluged with mixing and mastering offers and so i just have to kind of doing what the world wants me to do mm -hmm. okay uh 
what about it? I have to mention one thing. I do have one band, two bands. One band is called Purple Strange, and we made an album last year, and it's pretty good. It is. Um, And thank you for that. It's self-released. I mean, we couldn't promote it. We just threw it up there. And I'm also in an improv trio, which is called Beyond Captain Orca. Amazing Uh, name, by the way. (laughs) I didn't come up with the name, but I voted in favor of it and you know <laughs> nobody knew that i the, the other band members have never heard captain beyond actually the band mm. of which i am a fan so i you know it's like a little it's it's a coincidence but um the band is called beyond captain orca and it's a three-piece and it's improv i play guitar there are no songs no singer no rehearsals and no overhead wow <laughs> we literally just show up on stage and start playing and after 40 minutes we stop Wow. <laughs> every show every show is different it's a great rhythm section they're very intuitive and we just turn on a dime just like by esp all the time it's a weird band mm-hmm. um and we record most of the shows multi-track and we put them up on a Bandcamp site beyond captain com. so it's like i've got like 25 albums worth of of uh of material from this band up there because i was bringing my full pro tools rig to every show we played wow. and recording in good quality multi-track and then i would have fun going through it picking the best bits and mixing it down and we'd throw it up on bandcamp and we've probably made more money on bandcamp through that band than i've made on any of my other bands lately so um you know i can't call it a jam band thing because it's not we don't have songs you know there's no grateful dead covers here so so you'll (laughs) just like start playing a riff for example and then and the rhythm sexual section will fall in or how, how do you do or it? Or they will start playing a riff and I will fall in, or it might not even be, there might not even be a riff. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty free form, which sounds excruciating, which sounds, you know, what sounds could go wrong? Probably, <laughs> probably a lot could go wrong. A lot could go wrong. And, but the mission of the band was how can we take this paradigm and cast a spell over the room? Mm-hmm. How can we keep people from walking out? How can we keep people paying attention to us without being annoying or being weedly, weedly, weedly? Right. You know what I mean? That's the thing is we don't get weedly, weedly with the notes. Nobody's trying to play a million notes. It's not fusion. Right. Um, it's its own thing. Uh, it, there's something kind of Zen about it actually, but it's always worked strangely enough. So we're kind of into like something like five years we've been doing this actually. Wow. Uh, well, like you mentioned, I mean, the easy way to do a band like that is to have a guy just endlessly soloing over a rhythm section, right? Yeah, and I'm yeah. not really that guy. Yeah. You know, and uh, and really, we all, like, we the drummers are, he's like lead drums, bass is lead bass, I'm lead guitar. But yet, we're all, like, really restrained. Yeah. Well, know, I, because I, nobody, I figured... nobody wants to be that guy going and doing this. <laughs> you know, you just as soon as you as soon as one of us does that, we just catch ourselves. Like, right. oh, wait, wait, wait! It's not what this is about. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want people to know about that you're working on currently? Remixing some albums by the Fluid, uh, courtesy of Sub Pop, which is nice because I've had a chance to really improve some things that needed improving. And everybody's happy with it so far. It's still ongoing. Um, working on some archival Napalm Beach stuff. That was a amazing. And from yeah. Portland, who are kind of legendary. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a band called Image. I did some. I basically pieced together an album for uh, of stuff that had never been released. I think that's coming out this year. Image is Jimmy spelled backwards, actually. Mm. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, I'm sure there's other things. It's great that Sub Pop does that. And all the reissues, like the Green River stuff and the Tad stuff, it's all just excellent. Yeah, and, and they've gotten me involved in a lot of it, actually, either remixing or remastering. I sort of supervised the You Men box set as yep. well, yep. remixed a few things that hadn't been heard. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of Mr. Forensic, you know, because I, I, I know the history of this stuff. It's not like they have to explain it to me. Yeah. It's like, no, I know who has the tape, Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call them right now. Yeah. Uh, so uh yeah it's fine it's i'm having a good time with this stuff actually and plenty of new bands that you may or may not ever hear of because most of what i do nowadays is not on a label mm -hmm. you know probably 95 percent of it is bands releasing it on their own yeah and you don't hear about those the five percent that i do that's on a label you hear about because it's on a label for sure but most of it isn't and that's been the case since since the internet bust since about 2000 the indie labels kind of dried up there's only a few of them around Right on. Jack, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we didn't stay on the subject very well, but I hope that was... <laughs> you. Feel free to chop it up. Just don't make me say something I didn't. <laughs> no, no, no AI voices here, okay? No, no worries there. <laughs> thanks a lot. Great. Great. I'll see you. See ya. Bye. Oh, man. That was a good one. I love your question, though, suggesting that perhaps Jack has maybe recorded the most wah-wah guitar of all time <laughs> don't you think <laughs> yeah. oh i thought i was like yeah he probably is right yeah i don't know interesting to listen to him though about how down to earth and humble and also you know the way that jack describes his process as being like both really organic and hyper technical at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like he would, it seems like he would just, you know, nonchalantly just kind of go, Hey, just let me come and fix that, you know? And, and I think it's because of the way that Jack comes across is like people would allow him as an engineer, do some producing as he would just in a very unassuming manner, come over and say like, Hey, let me tweak your snare. Let me, let me turn that knob just a touch, right? And that's how you can get like amazing sounds with someone that has such an ear and technical ability for such little dollars that are to this day, don't sound dated, legendary records, right? Yeah, it's you've got producers like Rick Rubin, right? That guy lays on a couch and tries to inspire people or whatever. He's like a guru. Yeah, you've got people like Bob Ezrin who are involved in the songwriting. And when you get Bob Rez Ezrin as a producer, you're getting a certain sound, the Bob, e Bob Ezrin sound. Mm -hmm. And then you've got guys like Jack and Dino, who I, I would put in with the Steve Albini group. A, he likes recording bands. He, he told me, I mean, if you look up his discogs, that's a fraction of the, of the stuff he's done. Cause a lot of it is just smaller bands. In the, in the middle of our interview, a band rang his doorbell. <laughs> you know yeah. they just want it to sound good and get out of the way of the band yeah but because of because they're musicians and because of their ex experience in the studio they end up producing right because they know what sounds good because mm -hmm. they've recorded so many bands so i think that's where the producer angle ends up coming in less totally. less so on maybe song arrangements although they do do that maybe yeah. maybe reluctantly yeah, I don't know. Total national treasure, if you ask me. 
Yeah. I like when he was talking about four tracks, did you see that Lou Barlow was all excited on Instagram? He recently bought a, a cassette eight track recorder and was just like super pumped. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I did a lot of four track recording circa 86 to 96, both bands and myself. And I associate do like four track recording with being like really fun and creative. Yeah, well, you never know what's going to happen when you turn one of those knobs a little bit further than you should. Yeah. Some of the reissues he talks about, like, I don't know if this is actually going to happen, but how cool would a Skinyard 7-inch box set be? Yeah, <laughs> I know. I I mean, as big of fans as we are of Skinyard, I got to think that the market is sadly, like, unfortunately, probably, you know, pretty limited, but that would be so cool. Yeah. Uh, how cool are those Napalm Beach reissues going to be? I love mm -hmm. Napalm Beach. That That's awesome. The Fluid reissues too, both long overdue, I would say. Yeah. And um, I asked Lyle Heisen about this Dos Domin project that Jack mentions. Can't talk about it just yet, but people are going to flip out when they hear about it. I'm flipping right now. Yeah. Um, this Daniel house matt cameron band feedback that he mentions i, I had tried to source the recording a, a while back i i mentioned in the interview that had they had two d's in their name it's not two d's um, it's how they stylize their name that confused me it's kind of like with all caps with a small d and b in the middle and that's where the the confusion was on my end if you're trying to find this band anyways cz released a digital only album called home recordings 1984 in 2012 and I was trying to find it a while back and duh, it's on iTunes. I never think to check iTunes anymore. I'm so used to buying digital stuff off of Bandcamp, you know? Uh, so check that mm -hmm. out on iTunes. It's pretty great. It's instrumental, not quite as wild as Gone, but kind of in the same wheelhouse. And actually Jack was talking to me about Regressive Aid, remember? Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah, Sim I remember. Sim and Andrew's uh, pre-Gone yeah. pre band. He was definitely, you know, they they knew about Regressive Aid. And speaking of, uh, while we were on this Zoom call, he was showing me, you can hear it in the interview, his Snackmaster dehydrator for baking tapes. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, man, I wish I could bake those tapes for you today, but I'm making some jerky. I'll, uh, I'll get it in tomorrow. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of Jack being a musician, too, his uh, Beyond Captain Orca Bandcamp, like, holy shit, there are 36 different shows up there. Um, the recordings are all pristine, of course, because he, he did them. I spent a couple of hours just checking it all out. It's it's pretty awesome. Super psychedelic. Kind of reminds me a bit of this band Ozark Tentacles or Steve Hillage that I'm into. Clearly, all three uh, of the musicians in that band are top-notch. As we've talked about before, I love instrumental song titles. And here's some of the ones by Beyond, Cap or Beyond Captain Orca that I picked out. We Jam Aquatic. There's, <laughs> there's a song called Fuzz Factory, Lo-Fi Inversion Version. <laughs> nice. Um, there's, a, there's a track um, by this band called, and it's called Right Wabbit. There's no such thing as a free piano, which I thought was just the most hilarious song title <laughs> yeah. ever. 
the sub. No, come on. No, no, no. It's free. Just come over and grab it. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. The sub marinator. Oh, nice. Um, there's a studio recording too from 2018 with guest Pablo Giadoc. Sorry, I'm butchering that. Um, from Chilean psych band The Ganjas, who Jack has played with. Um, the Ganjas, I mean. There's a cool set from 2019 with uh, Leighton Beezer of the Throne Ups on second guitar. Also, Jack's personal band camp, much of which we've talked about on previous episodes, Endino's Earthworm Unearthed, uh, his amazing second solo album that came out in on Cruise originally in 1992 with a bunch of his famous friends chipping in. If you've never heard it, you're in for a treat. And if you know it really well, um, but you've never heard his remix restoration, you're you're in for a treat also. All of his other solo records are, are up on that Bandcamp. The remixed version of the Final Skinyard Studio album is on there. Uh, uh, Purple Strange, his band with, among others, Kurt Danielson of TAD. That's totally killer. It's yeah. for 21. Trees fans would dig that for sure. Uh, the psychedelic rock band he was in, Sky Cries Mary, have a couple of great records on his band camp. There's a cool record by the band MKB Ultra. He play, plays guitar and his partner Mia Catherine Boyle sings and plays guitar on that. She's awesome. They also have their own band camp, MKB Ultra, with some other studio records and a live set from 2017 in Chile. So do yourself a favor and set aside a, a few hours to explore those all that, all that stuff. Uh, buy something, support Jack. Maybe it'll encourage him to put out another solo record sooner than 2033. <laughs> just doing all this just reinforces my urge to dig into this cruise catalog, mainly as an excuse to just binge Skin Yard. Yeah, I know. Let's talk about this record, Ryan. History Lesson, Part 2. Brant, to kick us off, how about a Spaceman spiel? Sure. All right. Again, just when you think you won't have any more Spaceman Spiels, you've got one left. Out of the SST catalog for Screaming Trees Buzz Factory, here's the Spaceman. Complex machinery operates all night long, creating a deafening drone. This sonic assembly line composes the soundtrack to a sensory overload. With Black Sun Morning, Flower Web, The Amazing End of the Universe, and eight others, SST 248, LP, cassette, and CD. Mm hmm. All right, track one, side one, where the twain shall meet. Now, I'll just say off the bat, these songs are all credited to the Screaming Trees as a group, but it's generally accepted that Gary Lee wrote the music and most of the lyrics. Um, that would change on the Epic albums where the other members really started to contribute, and there's individual songwriting credits. Van kind of starts this one off. Got me thinking, maybe this is the song Watt played on during the Spinhead sessions. Seems like a heavy bass song. And I mean, Van was a bass man through and through, so I'm not taking anything away from, from him, definitely. Still mining that 60s psych sound. It's a cool, catchy opener. I like at the end how Mark Pickerel pay, plays out on the toms. That part's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I love the intro to this. It is a bit of a Watt-esque type of intro. Like, you could hear Mike Watt playing that, but uh, coming in from Van right off the hop, just love it. Then the double guitar comes in, and 
again, in the first track, you have Lanigan going to the upper register, mm-hmm. and it totally works. Yep. The next one is Windows. Great guitar tone. This could have been a Cynic song. It has that sound, the guitar tone. I think Gary Lee generally played a Gibson Firebird or sometimes Les Pauls, but this sounds like a Gretsch or something. And sometimes his licks and little flourishes sound like a 12-string, even though I, I know that they're not. Yeah, this song has probably the coolest yeah of all time <laughs> to kick off a song. Don't Doesn't it just sound so badass yeah. when, Mark, when Mark says it? Yeah. It's almost like, you know, you start off with Where the Twain Shall Meet, which is a all-time classic Screaming Tree song. And then it goes right into this song, and it's like, they're not going to let up. And Lanigan saying, yeah, it's just like, yeah, we're just getting started. The next one, Black Sun Morning, kind of singled out in, in a lot of the promo stuff as a as a highlight, which it for sure is. Yeah. Um, I like how the guitar's slightly out of tune. It, I, I never really mind that when it's like that. Heavy wah, pure stooges vibe uh those licks too the way the way the amp is mic'd sounds like the the mic's placed across the room and it sounds killer jack and dino gets a credit for backing vocals i assume that's him on the chorus mark's vocals are definitely a little more unhinged here compared to what he did on subsequent albums when he really honed that signature style those big howls he lets fly some uncredited piano at the fade out too yeah, the piano outro also kind of hit some Stooges vibes for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Too Far Away. This is one where Mark's vocals are doubled, in the verses anyways. It's a cool enough track, one of the less memorable for me on the album, to be honest, but the next next one for me is a real corker. Subtle Poison? Yeah. Well, what I liked about Too Far Away actually is uh, Mark Pickerel's drumming on it. Mm-hmm. He's got he's got these little rolls that just turn the psych up in this song. I, I really liked it. There's a great tremolo wah outro, so I, I like Too Far Away. I'm in. Okay. Subtle Poison doesn't seem like it's going to be a ripper. The verses are a little downbeat, which makes that earworm of a chorus stand out even more. Like when Gary Lee hits that massive open E chord and Mark punctuates it with that do now. Fuck. Yeah, the uh, the piano clanking in the intro just sets it off too. Yeah, I love that song. Really like the next one too, Yard Trip Number Seven. This is a, a curious song and one I specifically asked Mark Pickerel about. I thought maybe it had drums on it when they brought it into the studio and they made a production choice in the studio, or maybe Jack suggested doing it this way. He said no, it was planned as an acoustic song with vocals, um, and I just love it. Um, I asked if they ever played it live, and he said no. The way he put it was Mark felt pretty vulnerable already on stage at the time and would have been way too intimidating for him to perform something like this, just him and an acoustic guitar. He said they didn't have a lot of dynamics in their set at this time, that they were pretty full on, and that that was a big reason why. Mm. I kind of told him what Jack said about Mark being very self-critical, and he definitely agreed he said he was really insecure about his ability at this time. Yeah, I was thinking about this track, and after reading Greg Prado's book, I kind of wonder if 
Yard Trip number seven would have been a great song for Lanigan to dig back up out of the old trees catalog and do in his later years. I bet you it would have been awesome. Mm-hmm. The other thing about this song or this side, I guess, of the record is it ends with somebody saying, we have to do it by a question and answer response. And the question would be, what kind of trees are you? And the response would be screaming trees. Yeah. Uh, Mark couldn't recall specifically what this was about. He thinks it was their booking agent, Steve Call, who's still in the business, by the way, and, and at this time worked for Global Booking, um, who I've attempted to have on the show more times than I can count. Steve, if you're listening, please. Anyways, um, he thinks, Mark thinks that maybe that they were having van trouble or something, and Steve was wiring the money, and that was the password they were going to have to give to receive it or something like that. Well, I was wondering because it's there. There is a reference to it being online. Mm-hmm, I know, and I'm like, well, there wasn't no internet back then. Yeah. What are we talking about here? Is this a radio spot? The wire transfer actually makes a bit more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought it was at first. Was like a radio spot or something. Flipping it over, flower web, more acoustic guitars, definitely psychedelic leaning lyrics. And the world which will change into a fog of butterflies when you put your head into the flower web. Storms crowd your daydream scene. Mark kind of talked about some of Gary Lee's lyrics being kind of abstract like this and not super personal to him. Mm-hmm. In the sense that he wasn't necessarily writing about his own experiences. So again, he didn't take issue when Mark wanted to change things up lyrically. Yeah. Listen, I get where if Gary Lee was to bring like lyrics to Lanigan that were all about like mushrooms and wizards and Lanigan would want to make it more personal and it. Yeah. Uh, the next one's Wishbringer. There's a video for this on Gary Lee's YouTube. He says in the, in the comment, somewhat restored lost video directed by our friend, Kathy Malloy and shot in our rehearsal space in the back of new world video and around Ellensburg. It was never released, but we played a test version with a time code during a German TV interview with Van and our 1990 European tour manager, Sean Hollister. It's a cool track. Uh, maybe wouldn't have been my pick as a, a single or a video or kind of a track to highlight, but it's it's not a bad song either. It's good mid-tempo rocker. Don't you think it's Pedro speak? What? What part? Wishbringer. Yeah, I guess so, hey? That's kind of Pedro speak, I think. Yeah, maybe. I... I kind of got like Wawa bass on this song. I don't know if Van ever played like Wawa on his bass, hmm. or maybe that's just uh, Gary Lee kind of doubling it on the E string, but uh, I loved it. Revelation Revolution is the next track. Another one that totally could be a cynic song. I'm not sure if I've said that on other Trees episodes, but you know, they had obviously a strong 60s psych influence too, so. It's the guitars for me. Yeah, well, this track for me, the uh, again, I'm keying in on Van's bass playing. It's pretty busy bass playing on it, and it kind of reminded me in a really weird way of like the bass jug on 13th Floor Elevators mm-hmm. tracks, mm-hmm. the way that the bass is playing. So again, another psych reference. Van is playing you know, bass for this song in the style of the bass jug player. Yeah. I don't know. When I listen to this, slow it down, put a Farfisa on it, and have Michael Kostelich sing on it, and you've got a cynic song. Mm-hmm. 
which is weird to think about because you don't you don't think of the screaming trees associated with that. They're so closely associated with grunge. Well, I mean, it's funny. I was when I'm reading up on this this week. There are references to the cynics. Really? Ha- together with the trees. Oh yeah, for sure. Hmm. Um, but I wonder if it is like in retrospect, yeah. right? Yeah. The next one is the looking glass cracked. Speaking of Farfisa, there it is, or some kind of organ. Uh, the solo in this track is just a good example of what Jack and I were talking about, where it sounds like your classic rock backwards solo, but I don't think it is. To me, a lot of his his solos have that quality. I agreed with your comment when you made that to Jack. I'm like, yeah, it's almost like Gary Lee, again, influenced by the backwards guitar track um, and tried to emulate it while playing forward Mm -hmm. and he totally does it right yep hey so speaking of cynics i knew i read this hang on a sec um i've got a spiel from this book later on from uh we can be the new wind alexandros anesiatis listen to this spiel out of the screaming trees chapter okay Mm -hmm. here here's gary lee in the beginning i always saw us as being like the cynics Mm. or plastic land or some of the LA Paisley underground bands, Gary admits. Luckily the direction the rest of the band wanted to go in was different. And that retro thing just became one element of our sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. Less, I knew I read that less, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is overt or the, Mm -hmm. the psychedelic thing, you know? In that chapter, the interview with Gary, he's really talking about how there was this creative tension almost between him being like so psych and everyone else being a little bit more punk. And mm-hmm. that's that's the tree sound. Yeah. And then the last track is End of the Universe. It's a one-way ride to the end of the universe. Please leave your mind at the back of the plane. Golden dreams that you can't imagine never await you inside your freak show today. Ooh. I feel like this would have been a set closer with that big, noisy, jammed middle section that goes into the slower riff section and then the big dramatic pause and they slowly go back into the the main riff of the song. It almost, when you listen to it on record, the looking glass cracked and end of the universe almost sounds like one movement. Like they, they go right together. Yeah. Not sure what that is at the the end of the album. Kind of sounds like a scrambled CB or a radio signal or something. Mm-hmm. Here, let me hit you with the, the Buzz Factory spiel out of that book, We Can Be the New Wind, okay? Yeah. Here's Alexandros Anisiadis. Their next LP, 1989 Buzz Factory, was the last for SST Records and remains my personal favorite. I rate this LP as the peak of Screaming Trees, which really matters since we're talking about a band that never released anything less than great. Maybe it has to do with the way Buzz Factory is connected in my heart. Those endless trips far away from home reflected on the song Too Far Away that still sends chills down my spine or just because Windows and Wishbringer are, well, sheer perfection. And here's a spiel out of uh, Jim Rulin's book, 
corporate rock sucks about the recording of Buzz Factory as well. In December 1988, the Screaming Trees left Ellensburg to record its final album for SST at Reciprocal with Endino, the same producer who'd made Soundgarden's Ultra Mega OK demos. And here's Steve Fisk. We made so many records together, Fisk said. The idea that they would work with somebody else made sense. Also, the band was spending more time in Seattle after Lanigan moved there, leaving Ellensburg for good. Buzz Factory is more of a throwback to the psychedelic 60s than any of the three previous albums. The record opens with a wall of distorted guitars on where the twain shall meet, and it's not until the third track, Black Sun Morning, that Screaming Trees hits the sweet spot between the 60s and 70s that contains the DNA of the Seattle sound. The album closes with End of the Universe, a rambling ultra-rocker with extensive guitar solos, a fitting end to the band's run with SST. So it's interesting, Jim is making the point here that the trees were kind of a pre, like, almost like proto-grunge, the trees, mm-hmm. hey? Yeah. Which is fair. Yeah. Did you happen to check if there if this album is was in uh, the Gimme Indie Rock book? It is not in Gimme Indie Rock. The anthology is, though. The uh-huh. SST anthology is in Gimme Indie Rock. That makes Inter- sense. Interesting. I've actually got a copy of Buzz Factory. I've got the insert, thank God. But I've got it on, uh, I don't know if you can see, Ooh. purple, and which I'm now dubbing purple outside vinyl. Okay. That's the color of this SST pressing, purple outside vinyl. And it has dead wax. Oh, boy. Well, just hold off. We're not quite there yet. Dead wax. The cover, though, I guess that's the Buzz Factory on the cover. It has to be, right? I asked Mark, and and I asked Jack and Dino as well, if this was like a a landmark from Ellensburg or something, and he said no. Uh, Jenna Scott, who was Lanigan's girlfriend at the time, sourced it from a book she had, he, he maybe thought. We also saw her and some photos she took of the band on Invisible Lantern. Yeah, the the photo on the insert, again, also looks like factories along the water. Mm-hmm. Just like this this one on the cover along the water as well. So it can't, can't help but think that perhaps it relates to boats. And then that leads me to either fish or lumber. And lumber probably makes more sense in the uh, interior Pacific Northwest here, but I could be wrong. Just guessing. That kind of purple haze color, I think, suits the psychedelic vibe of the the album for sure. The yep. the thank you list is pretty great. SST Global, Firehose, Donna Dresch, Susan Silver, Gary and Kathy Lee. That's the the Connor parents who own the video store. Yep. Kathy Malloy, who shot that video that I mentioned. Brian Long gets a thank you. Phil Newman, you talked about. Uh, Future dinosaur bassist Mike Johnson, who was also from the area. Uh, Eugene, Oregon, I believe. I think we've talked about he and Joe Preston's pre-Dino Melvin's band Snake Pit before. He also played on a ton of Lanigan projects. Yep, The Winding Sheet. Um, Grant Hart gets a thank you. Soundgarden, Sonic Youth, Steve Fisk, Dale Lanigan. Pretty sure that's Mark's dad, if I'm remembering from the book. Tom and Carol Pickerel, obviously Mark's parents, our families, and everyone else who gave us food, shelter, lent us equipment, or helped us out. 
Nate Hill and Matt Varnum of King Crab, another band from the area. Kind of a psych rock band, probably played together a lot. Jenna Scott did the artwork for some of their stuff too, very similar to what we saw on Invisible Lantern with the lettering. Yeah. When I spoke with Mark, he, he said this era from Invisible Lantern to Change Has Come, that EP, the Sub Pop EP they did in 1990, was his favorite era of a band. Although he said Dust is his favorite Trees record, which is interesting because he's not even on it. Maybe it was part of uh, writing some of the tracks. Yeah. He, sa- he told me, especially as a live band, he feels they were kind of at their peak during this era. Mm. He said after this, there was a bigger push to have a crossover record. And it, they kind of took the creative process in a different direction, which they did achieve some crossover success with Bed of Roses on Uncle Anesthesia and, of course, Nearly Lost You on Sweet Oblivion. The, and the singles movie, right? Yeah. I think that that kind of broke the trees. Yeah. That pressure, like internal, I'm sure, to some degree, and for sure external, I undoubtedly increased post-Nevermind, I would say, to have like a crossover hit. For sure. He also told me, Mark did, when he met Dave Grohl, Dave, Dave told him that Buzz Factory is one of his all-time favorite albums, and that it's one of he and his wife's relationship records. So that's pretty mm. cool. Yeah. How about some Dead Wax, Ryan? All right, you asked for it. Now, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I'll spell it. On side A, it's G-R-W-V-S-I-E-W-C-Z. And the best I can do there is Grevsowitz. Huh. Grevsowitz. That's the best I can do. Okay. I don't know. It's, it's almost got like a Polish ending on it. Um, my, my best guess, though, is that it is a jumble of a number of initials or something like that all put together Hmm. but i don't know who the z would be and then on side b it's v a u x as almost like vo or vox Hmm. but not v o x like the vox guitar company it's v a u x right so yet again no clue what they mean yeah all right ballot result yeah Ballot result. This is another tough one, for sure. Mine were Windows, Black Sun Morning, Subtle Poison, and Yard Trip number seven. Yeah, I like all those, too. I like where the twain shall meet, but for me, the yeah in Windows puts it over the top. All right, let's do Windows. Yeah. All right. Hey, thanks to uh, to Mark for chipping in and talking to me on the phone. That was really great. And thanks to Jack and Dino, of course, for being on the show. Super yes. busy guy. Lots of demands on his time, so really appreciate him making time for us. Yeah, totally. What's it like to get just a cold call from Mark Pickerel, hey, while you're traveling <laughs> to get ready for your podcast? Yeah. yeah awesome. It's it pretty awesome. What a nice guy. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, so uh, probably no pod next week again. It's your turn to do some traveling, and it's just going to cut into our into our podcast schedule, but that's okay. We'll be back in two weeks with... SST 249, the melting plot comp with a special guest. Yeah, we've got Dave Markey back on the show. Two-timer. You bet. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. 
If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.